I had a very eventful week, to say the least. Started last Sunday, spending the whole day with the Smith Smith family. What an encouraging, what an encouragement they were to us. Then I stayed up 40 hours straight. After that, doing various things. It was a winterum class, the Master's Seminary. So Pastor Scott Bashore and I carpooled. And uh, the class was Biblical Manhood and Womanhood with Dr. Wayne Grudem. Uh, almost every night I met with someone, had some kind of meeting, some kind of um, counseling, some kind of teaching, each, almost every night this past week. So very packed week to say the least. One of the highlights was actually having lunch with Dr. Wayne Grudem. Um, if you don't know him, he is a very um, godly man, excellent author, author of numerous great books, uh, Systematic Theology. His Systematic Theology is a must-have for all students of the scriptures. Well, as we were having lunch, we were asking him various questions, and one question that was asked was, what things he would recommend to a believer so that he or she might grow in his faith or her faith? What would he recommend? What does he practice to grow as a believer? And he said typical things, daily reading of the scriptures, um, heartfelt prayer, um, and reading good Christian books. But one thing he emphasized was, he said, join a small group in your church. He said, 20 years, for the past 20 years, him and his wife have been part of a small group consistently. Now, Dr. Wayne Grudem is a busy man. I mean, he wrote a systematic theology over a thousand pages. He is busy, but he says, it's a matter of survival for him and his wife to be part of a small group of his church. Vital to grow in a community of believers. I heard that and I I want to just share that with all of you this, uh, this morning. We began our flock ministry, small group ministry this past week for the year 2003. And we want you to come out and participate. We want you to come and grow and study and pray and fellowship with us. Because, as Dr. Wayne Groom said, it is vital for the Christian to be part of a community of believers where they will run with you, pray with you, and encourage you in the faith. So, we have one almost every night, Tuesday through Friday. We ask, a little plug for you, if you will, encouraging you to come out and be part of our small group ministry. The second little plug, our summer missions is coming up, 2003. We want to send a team to both Ireland and Czech Republic. That is the heart of the elders. And we pray that each and every one of you consider if God would uh, lead you to go this summer and proclaim the gospel halfway around the world. If you, you know, people say, oh, if you've gone once, you know, can I go again? Yes, you can go numerous times. Well, I'm married, can I go? Yes, you can go if you're married. You know, I have children, can I go? Yes, by all means, take your children and show them the gospel ministry and spend time with some godly people. I want to encourage you to really consider what God would have you this summer, what would God would have you do this summer in terms of the gospel ministry. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer one more time, and we'll begin our study for this morning. Well, God, we do pray for the Smiths. We trust that they are back home now in the Czech Republic, in the city of Kladno. What a joy the church must have in receiving back uh, their pastor and pastor's family and co-workers in Christ. 
Lord, we do pray that you continue to protect them, grant them spiritual vitality, grant them health, allow them to minister with freedom and grace so that the church there in Claudna will bring honor and glory unto you. Lord, here at Cornerstone this morning, we pray that you grant each believer here grace to understand these truths and appropriate, them, appropriate these truths to our lives by the help of the Holy Spirit. We pray all these things in the Lord's name. Amen. Well, I want to begin by asking you all to put your thinking caps on this morning. Now, as I teach verse by verse through the scriptures, the kind of sermon I preach is determined not by me, but by the text. The text, the passage, the Word of God determines to me, dictates to me, not just the content of my message, but the form, the structure, the style of my preaching and teaching. So this morning, the form, structure, and style of our study will be more in line with a seminary class as opposed to a Friday night revival meeting, right? So, again, I invite you all to put your student hats on as we go through our passage this morning. Now, this will be at least a two-part study in John 7:53 to 8:11. And this morning, we want to approach it with a heart to understand the theological significance of this passage, to understand the theological significance of this passage. And we're kind of prone to study the Bible and want to know its relevance to us, how it applies to us. Well, we also ought to have the heart to study the Bible to understand what God is doing, not just what's my application, what is its relevance to me, but just to understand what God has done throughout His redemptive history at various times to understand God's economy as revealed in the Word of God. So this morning, it might not be a, a relevant sermon or, someone, or a sermon that you can't particularly apply to your life, but I do believe it's albeit very important to all of us because it reveals the Word of God. It helps us to understand God's will. And next time in our study, we will deal with it more expositionally, deal with more of the perspective of how the text applies to us. Now, before we even get to the theological significance of this passage, we need to spend some time addressing the textual issue. The textual issue. Somewhere in your Bible, near chapter 8 of the Gospel of John, you should find the footnote that reads something like this. The earliest manuscripts do not include John 7.53 through 8.11. Now, if you have a really good Bible, it will also have this. Others add the passage here, or after verse 36, or at the end of the book, at chapter 21, verse 25, or after even the Gospel of Luke, Luke 21:38, with variations in the text. Now, if you're the type that reads footnotes, even in your Bibles, um, this has to raise many questions. Chief among the questions would be, how does this relate to inerrancy? How does this textual issue relate to inerrancy? 
This very question was asked to Dr. J.I. Packer a few months ago in Christianity Today. The question was, quote, How can I reconcile my belief in the inerrancy of Scripture with the comments in Bible translations that state that a particular verse or passage is not, quote, in better manuscripts, end quote. How can I reconcile these variants in manuscripts with our conviction, with our belief in the inerrancy of Scripture? Well, Dr. Packer began his answer with the following statement. The answer to this question parallels that of Charles Spurgeon, who when asked to reconcile human freedom and divine predestination, he said, I never reconcile friends. He maintained that these two realities do not need to be reconciled, human freedom and God's predestination, because these two realities fit perfectly together. And Mr. Packer said, that is the same case here. In our, in our case, the two friends are inerrancy and textual criticism. Now again, what is inerrancy? Inerrancy is the doctrine that in the original documents, the autographs, the text of Scripture was completely without error. Inerrant is without error. That's one friend. The other friend is textual criticism. It is the process of determining the original text by detailed comparison of the manuscripts. Let me repeat that. It is the process of determining the original text by detailed comparison of the manuscripts. Now, we'll get into this a little more deeper. I want to preface it by saying that in my seminary, one of the most feared and dreaded classes was New Testament Introduction with Dr. Robert Thomas. This is the kind of class where uh, summa cum laude students will get a C-. minus. So it was dreaded definitely by me. Uh, we spent 13 weeks just on these kinds of issues of textual criticism. So this morning, in 30 minutes, I do not have the time in our context to do an in-depth study on this issue, but I just want to highlight to you the main points about textual criticism and manuscript evidence, really summarizing how do we get our Bible from Apostle, Apostles Matthew and John, Mark and Luke and, and, and Paul and Peter, from them writing it, having it been copied throughout the centuries, translated to many languages, and finally translated to English in our hands, how do we get the Bible today? I will hope to answer by some broad strokes this morning. So, the first broad stroke, number one, we all know New Testament churches did not have copy machines. Right? They did not. Everything was written down in papyrus materials. Papyrus materials. This is a type of paper made with papyrus plants. Now, parchment were, writ- were writing material made with animal skins, but they were so expensive that New Testament writers couldn't afford animal skins. So it was write, written on papyrus materials. And each copy was, not, was made meticulously by hand. Hand copying, letter by letter, word by word, a New Testament was copied for various Christians in various churches. 
And because of this, hand copying of the original writings, mistakes were made. Some were, many were unintentional. Very few, some were intentional because of their doctrinal bias, because of their theological uh, stances. Some mistakes were intentionally made, but most were unintentional by the copyists. Now, as the New Testament was written and copied throughout Asia Minor, due to geography, culture, and language, four main manuscript families arose in the first few hundred years of the New Testament church. So right now, we have 25,000 manuscript evidences going back all the way to 2nd century B.C. These can be categorized with some overlap into four general families of manuscripts. Meaning, if they were to trace these manuscripts back to its origin, they can say, you know what, they came from these four main family groups. First is Byzantine, second is Alexandrian, third is Western, fourth is Caesarean. If you take NTI, you need to memorize this for your quiz. Byzantine, Alexandrian, Western, and Caesarean. Now, as I said, we have over 25,000 manuscripts of the New Testament in our hands. That is the standard in terms of antiquity. You will find no other ancient document coming close to the number of manuscripts we have as opposed to the New Testament. The earliest manuscripts date back to the 2nd century. Most of them are from the 3rd through the 5th century. Actually, when Sun and I went to our Israel trip, we had a London layover. We went to the British Museum Library, and they actually had the original Sinaiticus Codex. This is a third century Bible that contains all the books of the New Testament. It was actually there, written by hand, preserved for 1,700 years, and is with us even today. So we have all these manuscripts, 25,000, some as little as four or five words of a verse. Others, like the Sinaiticus, every book in the New Testament, we have 25,000 manuscripts. Textual criticism is the scientific process where we determine with great confidence the original text. They get these manuscripts, and by comparing these manuscripts they can, with great confidence, discover what was originally written. So if they go to John chapter 4, let's say, 24, God is spirit, his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And 95% of the manuscripts say the verse as we have it now. And 5% misspells a word. Or 5% has the word order backwards, or is missing a word, then by this process we know, we can trace it back, some copyist in the 3rd century mistakenly left out this word, because 95% of the copies has it in place. So through all of this uh, scientific process, we find that in the New Testament, only one word per thousand is in any way doubtful. That's incredible. That's extremely accurate. Out of every thousand words you see in the New Testament, one word is in any way cast a shadow of a doubt in terms of 
its original writing. And in any of those uh, doubtful words, it in no way, in no point, does it change doctrine. No point of doctrine is changed or lost because of any of these debated words. We find that a great majority, like 99% of the discrepancy that we find in these manuscript evidence, evidences, is easily remedied with the issue of copious errors and spelling, words that were added and left out. That about solves 99% of the variance in the manuscripts, except for two places. In Mark chapter 16, 9-20, you will find that same footnote, that earliest manuscripts do not have 9-20. Now, through, through what I read from the scholars, through the manuscript evidence, it seems that Mark ended his gospel in verse 8. Under God's sovereignty, for some unknown reason, Mark was not allowed to finish his gospel. And it ends abruptly at verse 8. And as we look at the manuscript evidence, it seems that some later editor in the 2nd or 3rd century, as he was copying Mark 8, Mark, Gospel of Mark, he comes to chapter 16 and he says, man, what kind of ending is this? Right? It's not done. We've got to finish this gospel. So he inserted his own ending. And by doing that, later editors, later copiers, copied his edition, and that is why the earliest manuscripts do not have 9 through 20. And so, I believe, and many scholars believe, that 9 through 20 is not part of the inspired canon. The second place where you see that footnote in all the New Testament is here in John 7, 53 through chapter 8, verse 11. Are you guys still with me? Right? Does that make sense? Right? Now, as we consider this morning whether this passage belongs in the Bible, I am reminded, I want to remind you of our Lord's words in Revelation 22, 18 and 19. It causes me to approach this text with fear and reverence. Because our Lord ended the New Testament with these warnings. He said, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city which are described in this book. That closes the New Testament. A solemn warning to anyone who would dare add anything to the Bible or take anything out. Therefore, I tread on this area with great care and reverence. Now, Bible scholars have raised questions about this text for four reasons. For four reasons. First of all, this passage is not found in those Greek manuscripts judged as oldest and the best. Oldest and the best. Out of the four families, the most oldest and the most reliable family is the Alexandrian. And in that family of manuscripts, John 7.53 through 8.11 is not present. 
And when the passage does appear, as it says in our footnote, sometimes it appears after verse 36. Sometimes it appears after the Gospel of John. Sometimes it is placed after the Gospel of Luke. So it looks like it's a passage that's looking for a home. Right? Where do I belong? And some people put it in between John 7 and John 8. Early in the church, the New Testament was translated, number two, into many languages for the purposes of evangelism, for the purpose of evangelism. And these are very reliable manuscripts that we use to discover, um, to go through the manuscript evidence, the textual criticism process. Many translations. Uh, Many of the older translations, translations into Latin, Armenian, and Gothic translations, omit this passage. Thirdly, the internal evidence reveals that this text was not written by John. The internal evidence. The style, the vocabulary is very different from the rest of John's Gospel. For example, verse 3, teachers of the law or scribes, you do a word search in the Gospel of John, you will find that this is the only instance where that word is present in the Gospel of John. There are many words here that are unique to this passage in all of John's Gospel. Metzger, in his textual commentary on the Greek New Testament, says, quote, The evidence for the non-Johannine origin of this passage is overwhelming. It says the evidence that this was not written by John is overwhelming, end quote. And fourthly, not only that, the passage does not fit well into the historical context of John 7 and John 8. Remember, our Lord is in the Feast of Tabernacles. We had just studied that He's in the last day of the tabernacle. And then He goes to the Mount of Olives and He comes back the next day? It doesn't make sense. The people have dispersed by now. The feast is over. It fits perfectly. John seven fifty two to eight twelve. It fits perfectly because on the last day of the feast, on the evening, the candelabras that were lit to illuminate the temple area were turned off. And it's in this context where our Lord says, "I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness." So if this passage is not there, the flow, the historical context is perfect. This passage of disjoins that historical flow. Therefore, a number of highly respected scholars do not believe that this text is part of John's Gospel. Leon Morris, a highly respected evangelical scholar, writes, the textual evidence makes it impossible to hold that this section is an authentic part of this Gospel. C.K. Barrett said, quote, It is certain that this narrative is not an original part of this gospel. Westcott, Westcott and Hort says, This passage first came into John's gospel as an insertion. Right. So many agree that John didn't write this passage and it does not belong in John's gospel. But, most agree that though not originally part of John's Gospel, it is a part of inspired Scripture. Uh, You guys want to get that part, right? 
because you don't want to end here and earn a misquote cornerstone and misquote me. Most agree that though not part of John's gospel, it is still a part of inspired scripture. Why? Because even though it is not found in the oldest manuscripts, it is present in many of the older and fairly reliable manuscripts of the New Testament. Leon Morris, talking about church history, says that throughout the history of the church, it has been held that whoever wrote it, this little story is authentic. It seems that church history points to its authenticity. There is an intriguing reference by Eusebius in his book, Ecclesiastical History, written around 313, and he is quoting Papias, an earlier church father from the second century, and Papias is writing about a woman who was brought before the Lord who was charged with committing many sins. So from the second century, a church father was talking about this passage, this text. It is also mentioned by Augustine, by Ambrose, both of these men, 4th century church fathers, vigorously defended the genuineness of this passage. And therefore, an overwhelming majority of evangelical New Testament scholars and, and pastors affirm that though it wasn't written by John, it is part of inspired scripture. It belongs in the canon. Let me read to you what John Calvin said, quote, It is plain that this passage was, no, was unknown to the ancient Greek churches. And some conjecture that it has been brought from some other place and inserted here. But it has always been received by the Latin churches. And is found in many old Greek manuscripts. And contains nothing unworthy of an apostolic spirit. Therefore, there is no reason why we should refuse to apply it to our advantage. End quote. West Cotton Hort wrote, quote, the story itself justly vouches for its substantial truth, end quote. Hoskins called the passage an authentic episode in the ministry of Jesus. Indeed, Metzger believes that though it does not originate with John, at the same time, the account has all the earmarks of historical veracity. And the final quote by Gerard Borcher, uh, New American Commentary, published by the Southern Baptists, he says, This little pericope, this little passage, is one of the great jewels of Christian scripture. It is a text looking for a context, but it is to be regarded as being fully canonical, even though it has been understood by textual scholars to be out of place. For some unknown reason, this text has lost its contextual home. But it is completely at home within the, authorita within the authoritative pages of the Bible. End quote. I agree with that. In my study this week, it seems that, yes, the author might be Luke, might be anonymous, but very, very likely that one of the apostles or close companions of the apostles wrote this as an eyewitness or as first-hand account, somehow, for some unknown reason, and some scholars say that the Greek churches in the early, 
early uh, three centuries, they were against, they were afraid of adultery, afraid of sexual sin. And they misunderstood this passage as somehow Christ condoning adultery. And so somehow the church took it out of, out of the gospel, removed it, and it lost its home. But through, through my study, I believe it is inspired text. It belongs in the, in the canon. It is the word. It is a word from God. It is inspired, inerrant, infallible, and sufficient, and therefore worthy of our study this morning. Therefore, my intention and commitment this morning is to preach this text with the same zeal and the same sense of biblical authority as I would any other text of Scripture. You guys still with me? I'm losing a few of you, but all that to say... That is part of the Bible. Now, why do I explain this? It's because I, I never want anyone to lose confidence in the Word of God. I don't want any one of us to look at our scriptures with any kind of doubt, with any kind of suspicion. We want to know as Bible-believing Christians that the Word, the book that we hold in our hands, is inspired by God. It's the will of God given to us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that is why I go through all of that to explain that it is Actually, from the scriptures. Well, okay. Let's go to the Bible. Let's go to the text. Um, again, remove this text from the historical context. As we, when we go back to John 8.12, we're still on the last day of the feast, in the Feast of the Tabernacles. But in this passage, our Lord goes to the Mount of Olives, probably to, the, to Gethsemane, where he would often uh, rest and spend the night. It is a mile east of the temple. He returns from Mount of Olives early, early in the morning. After he returning, he sits down to teach the crowd that is gathered around him. The scribes, who are the teachers of the law, and the Pharisees, they bring a woman who has been caught in the act of adultery. Look at verse 4. They bring her to his presence. And say to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, Moses commanded us to stone such women. It's an act, the sin punishable by death. That's what Moses commands us to do. What do you say? They want to create a dilemma for Christ. They want to... Put Christ as opposed to the law of Moses. Moses says this, what do you say? Now, what is the motivation of these scribes and Pharisees? Their hidden motive is revealed by, by the writer in verse 6. This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. It wasn't a sincere question. It wasn't out of compassion and pity for this woman. This woman is about to be stoned. Will you save her as a teacher from God? Their motivation was periazzo, to ensnare him in his speech, to catch him going against the law of Moses or going against the Roman government because, because they were occupied by, by Rome. They didn't have the authority for capital punishment. If he said stoner, he'd be in trouble with the Roman government. If he said let her go, he'd be in trouble with the law of Moses and with the people of Israel as well. They were trying to ensnare him. And this is not the first time they tried to do this. 
<clears throat> numerous times in the Gospels, Pharisees come with, with just pretense, innocent pretense, but all the while trying to ensnare Christ. Matthew 19, they ask about divorce and remarriage, trying to have him say something against the law of Moses. In Matthew 22, an expert in the law comes and asks, what is the greatest commandment? And Matthew says, trying to test Christ. In Luke 20, 19-26, it says, The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said, so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right. You do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. And they ask him this question to trap him. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is this right? Verse 23, He saw through their duplicity and said to him, Show me a denarius whose portrait and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied, and in this great, perfect wisdom of Christ, he said, Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what belongs to God. And, and Luke says in verse 26, They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public. They were astonished by his answer. They became silent. I mean, this was a tactic that they, they used again and again throughout the Gospels. And their philosophy was, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. So here they are, back in John 8, and what do they do? They use a poor woman, caught in adultery, use her for their own evil means, and they say in verse 5, the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? It is a dilemma of Solomonic proportions. And to... Let me illustrate. Let's go to the Old Testament. Let me give you a perfect illustration of this to highlight to you the drama, the dilemma that is present before Christ. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 6 in the Old Testament and you'll see a perfect parallel in Daniel 6 between Darius, the governors of Babylon, and, and, and Daniel and what is happening with Christ, the Pharisees, and this woman caught in adultery. A perfect illustration. In Daniel 6, Darius is the king of Babylonia. He appointed 120 satraps, or governors, to rule over his kingdom. Over these 120 governors, he established three administrators over these 120. So these three are the chief of staff, right? Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, I mean, top three people. Daniel was such an, Daniel was one of the three, and he was such an exceptional administrator. Because of his moral character, because of his distinguished service, King Darius planned to promote Daniel over all his colleagues. So Daniel will be above the two administrators who are over 120 governors. Now, the two administrators didn't like this one bit. The other governors didn't like this one bit because Daniel was a foreigner. 
He was brought in exile from Israel, from Judah. This aroused their jealousy and they immediately began to plot on how they can trap Daniel and cause his downfall. So they sent investigators to investigate his life, his private life, his finances, his background, looking for something so that they might cause his downfall. They try to find some inconsistency, try to find some corruption in his life, in his governmental interactions. They were seeking something with which they might charge him before the king so that Daniel might be discredited. And in all their search, verse 4, they could find no ground for complaint or any fault. They found nothing. He was impeccable. He was above reproach. He was a righteous man. Why? Because he was faithful. And no error or fault was found in him. I mean, they were just aghast at this Boy Scout. I mean, he was so, so perfect in all his ways that they concluded in verse 5, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel except one area unless we find it in, its connect, in connection with the law of his God. He said, that's the only, only way we can entrap Daniel. Otherwise, he is impeccable. With this in mind, these two administrators and the governors came to King Darius, and they managed to issue, managed him, they asked him to issue a new law in the land. Go to verse 7. The law would be that whoever prays to any God, prays to any God or any man for the next 30 days, except, to the, except for the King Darius, he shall be cast into the den of lions. They appeal to him, now, O King Darius, establish this law, sign this document, so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians. It cannot be revoked. Now, King Darius fell into their trap. He, you know, puffed up by this praise of his administrators and governors. He signed this document and made this injunction law. By putting this decree in writing and signing it, he made it unalterable. It was a binding law to all the citizens of Babylonia. And this publication of this decree reached Daniel's ears. And his enemies knew this, that Daniel's commitment to God was such that he would not change his routine. He would pray three times every day publicly. His practice was to go to his upstairs room with his windows open towards Jerusalem and pray three times a day. His enemies suspected that Daniel was so devoted to his God that he would continue this public prayer even though the law was passed and to their delight, they saw with their own eyes. Daniel praying to God. They went back to the king immediately, reported Daniel's flagrant breach of the royal decree, and they said, Look, king, oh king, Daniel is purposely and publicly violating your law. He is openly rebelling against your authority. Look at verse 13. Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you. Oh king, or the injunction you have signed, Verse 14 tells us that King Darius was greatly distressed. He deeply regretted his hasty decision to sign this, de this decree and make it into a law. In verse 14, he spends the whole day thinking of some way, how can I rescue Daniel? 
He doesn't deserve this faith. How can I rescue him from this predicament? He's at this quandary, this dilemma. Trying to figure out some way to rescue him. But the, the governors, these administrators, hypocritically, hypocritically called on Darius to uphold the law. This is the law of the land. They reminded him, verse 15, O king, it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction, injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. So Darius reluctantly bowed to the inevitable and gave the order for Daniel to be thrown into the, into the lion's den. And so the law was triumphant. Daniel was punished. We, we know all what happened with, uh, with Daniel and Daniel 6. But back to the Gospel of John. This story perfectly parallels the dilemma set before Christ. Because here are these Pharisee scribes hypocritically bringing this woman, calling on Christ to uphold the law. And the Mosaic law is clear. Leviticus 20.10 Anyone who commits adultery, both the adulterer and the adulteress, must be put to death. And... Now, I believe there is no doubt she's guilty. She is not pleading innocence. She's not saying, I am innocent of these charges. In fact, at the end, what does Christ say? Go and leave your sin. Sin no longer. Why? Because she was in sin. So she is guilty of adultery. The law clearly mandates that she be executed, she be stoned to death. What is Christ to do? Will he uphold the law of his God, law of his Father, and execute this woman? Or will he go against the law of Moses? Transgress, violate Old Testament commands. And pardon her, release her. What a dilemma. If he condemns her, he's in trouble with the Roman government. If he releases her, he's breaking the law of God. Well, they bring this question to Christ. Look at verse 6b. The Lord doesn't legitimize the question with an immediate answer. He knows their heart. He knows their motivation. He, he sits down. He bends over. And is writing on the ground. Now, we don't know what he wrote. But I believe he is just ignoring them. They don't deserve an answer. Especially an immediate answer. In verse 7 as they continue, they're persistent, they're continuing to ask him, press him, and he stands up and he says to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now consider those words. I mean, let's not just gloss over this precious truth. Let's not just, okay, what's next? Fellow saints, I want you to consider just the rich wisdom in those words, just the abundant grace and the mercy of our Lord in, in that single sentence. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. These words are filled with justice, at the same time filled with the mercy of God. The scene is so dramatic and the teaching here is so powerful that these are unforgettable words, right? This is an unforgettable event in the life of Christ. So unforgettable 
that this has become a well-known verse. I mean, not just in the church, but in the world, right? You listen to talk radio, right? Read newspapers, or even talk shows, I mean, TV shows, they'll quote this verse. It is that popular. But sadly, as with almost all well-known verses, it is greatly misunderstood. Greatly misunderstood. I want to ask three questions concerning this, this passage here. These questions have broad significance theologically. Right? Three theologically far-reaching questions. And, and brothers and sisters, I want, I want you to have a heart, not just, again, not what's my application, what's the point, but to understand the Word of God. What is going on? What is God's will? How is God leading His people in the Old Testament and during this time? That's the heart that I want all of us to have. The first question is, is Jesus canceling the Old Testament law? Is He nullifying Old Testament law? Is He abrogating the Old Testament law? There were 16 crimes that called for the death penalty in the Old Testament. 16. Premeditated murder, kidnapping, adultery, homosexuality, incest, bestiality, incorrigible delinquency of a child, striking or cursing parents, Offering a human sacrifice, false prophecy, blasphemy, profaning the Sabbath, sacrificing to false gods, magic and divination, unchastity and rape. These 16 crimes demanded execution. That's the law of God. Is is the Lord canceling it out? Is He nullifying it? That's the first question. I mean, when Christ says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw, throw a stone at her, he is not saying that the Old Testament leaders were sinless. Definitely not. Is our Lord saying, that's the Old Testament, that's old. We are no longer the old law, we're under the new law. These old laws do not apply. Is that what he's saying? The second question is, and I'm going to touch upon this next time, is Jesus teaching us not to judge one another? Right? I mean, how many times have we heard this? We must never judge. We must tolerate. Love everybody. Accept everyone. If you point one finger, three fingers point back at you. Right? So we must never judge. And you know, so on and so forth. Third question. Why doesn't Jesus condemn this woman? Because she is guilty. Right. She is guilty of this sin. Right. Well, let's tackle the first question. Is our Lord nullifying the Old Testament law? Now, to answer this, we need to have a right understanding of the Mosaic law. In the Gospels, when you see the word law, it always refers to the Mosaic law. Mosaic law in a broad sense, the first five books of the Old Testament, and Mosaic law in a narrow sense, the codified by the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. But when it says law, it refers to the broad and narrow, the Old Testament, the first five books, or the Ten Commandments, or the commandments of God. Now, to rightly understand the law, we need to answer this question. Is the Old Testament law an indivisible unity? Is the Old Testament law an indivisible unity? Some believe and some teach 
that any attempt to divide the law is wrong will result in certain error? That if the law is divided in any way, then the whole law has been broken. And they use three verses to support this. James 2.10 Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Galatians 5.3 Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law of God. Galatians 5.3 And Matthew 5.19 Words of Jesus. He says, Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. These three verses are used, support the idea that the word, the law of God is one indivisible unity. And if at one point you divide the law of God and you nullify, you cancel, you violate any point of the law, then you're guilty of breaking all of it. Well, I do believe that every command of God must be observed. That we cannot have a buffet mentality and pick and choose what commands we want to obey. So we recognize that there is a certain truth to the claim that the law exhibits a unity and stands as a unit. But we also believe that it is legitimate to classify the Mosaic law into three categories. Categories of moral, ceremonial, and civil laws. Same thing with the laws of the United States, right? There are different categories. There are federal laws, state laws, criminal laws, civil laws. Likewise, the Mosaic Law, the first five books, and even the Ten Commandments can be categorized into three separate categories. Moral, ceremonial, civil. Let me try to identify the distinctions between these three, three categories by looking at their nature, their function, and their time. You should have an outline that has a little chart We'll fill them in as we go. The nature of these laws, the essence, the purpose, the function, and the time. Time of of these laws. First of all, the moral law. In its essence, the moral commands of God reflect the holy and righteous character of the lawgiver. The moral laws reveal the holy attribute, the holy essence of God who is a lawgiver. God's attributes of (coughs) justice, righteousness, holiness, and jealousy are are disclosed and unveiled in these moral laws of God. Now, what's the purpose of the law? Turn with me to Galatians 3, 19-26. Galatians 3. The purpose of the law was not to become righteous by obeying the law. That was never the intent of the law. The purpose of the law was so that the law might lead us to Christ. The law might lead us to Christ. Paul asks that question in Galatians 3.19. What then was the purpose of the law, of the moral law of God? Verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Law was our guardian. Some of your translations might have schoolmaster. Some of you might have teacher. The law was our guardian, our schoolmaster until Christ came. The Grecian youth was under the charge of a, of a teacher, a tutor throughout his youth. 
And the tutor, one of his jobs was to take this kid to school. He would lead his, this child to school and lead him back. That's what Paul is saying. The law was our tutor. Law was our guardian, our schoolmaster, taking us to school. Taking us to Christ. That was the purpose. In order, verse 24, that we might be justified by faith. Verse 25, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We are no longer under the Old Testament law. Because we are now in Christ Jesus. You are all sons of God through faith. So, we are under the law of Christ. That's the purpose of the moral law. The time, the time of the moral law, it's eternal. Right? Eternal. Uh, Matthew 5.17, Christ said, Think not that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. 5.18, I came not to destroy, but to fulfill. He says, Till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle shall in no way pass away from the law till all things are accomplished. The law of God, this moral law of God preceded Moses. Right? I mean, Cain and Abel didn't have, thou shalt not kill. But Cain knew, by God's general revelation, by God's presence, by God's revelation that murder was wrong, even though it wasn't codified until Moses came. Under Moses, it was clear, God wrote it with his own finger, thou shalt not kill. And even today, even though we are under, we're in Christ, the moral law still stands. We are not to kill. We're not lawless. We're not free to disobey God. We're under the law, but it's codified in Christ, a different application. Let me explain this to you guys. Let me illustrate this. Um, a few years ago, I was coming home from seminary on the 101 freeway, going 65 miles per hour, right? Just right on 65, cruise, pushed it, right, 65 miles per hour. I'm going on the fa- uh, uh, first lane, the, the passing lane, and the middle lane is a police officer, right? And he's just cruising at 55. And I look over to him and I thought, man, you know, maybe I should just slow down and just kind of track him a little bit. But, I don't know, some voice inside my head said, hey, James, the law is 65. Go ahead. You're not doing anything wrong. So I said, confidently, with my head raised, I just pass him by, 65. And then I see those horrible lights <laughs> in my rearview mirror. You guys see those lights? Lights start flashing. And I'm like, man, what did I do? And he pulls me over. So as he comes to the driver's side window, I look up with those innocent eyes, the most like innocent face I can muster up, and say, what happened, officer? He says, well, you're speeding. I said, no, officer. I was going 65 miles per hour. And he said, in the state of California, the speed limit is 65, except for downtown L.A. In downtown L.A., the speed is reduced to 55 miles per hour. Then I give him that quizzical look. I don't understand. I had no idea. And he asked me, well, where are you coming from? Oh, I'm a pastor. I'm coming from seminary. We study law in our seminary. And I had no idea. So he let me go, right? By the grace of God. That's why I would use this illustration. If he didn't let me go, I'd be too bitter to share it with you this morning. But he let me go. Well, the illustration is, right, as you go through different 
areas of California, different laws apply. As you travel through America, as you go through different states, there are different laws. Although you're under the law of the United States of America, it's codified differently, applied differently, depending on which state you're in. Likewise, the time period. The moral law it was codified and applied differently throughout redemptive history. Pre-Moses, during Moses' time, now the church age. But still, the people of God, we are still under the moral law of God. Time is eternal. Second category of Mosaic law are the religious laws. Religious laws. These laws centered on the religious activities of Israel. Laws concerning the temple. Instructions for the Levites. Instructions on sacrifices. Instructions concerning the Sabbath and all the animal feasts. They were... They were just focused on ritual purity, right? So you can't, you know, uh, uh, touch leprous people and worship God. You can't eat certain foods, dietary laws. And then all these rules about touching carcasses of animals and you're ritually unclean. Then all these commands and instructions that concern, that focused on religion. These laws also reflect the holy character of God, that He is separate. That he is set apart, that he is holy, he is distinct. Reveals the holy character of God. And the purpose of these religious laws were to point to Christ, point to the coming Messiah and his kingdom. Matthew eleven thirteen, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Hebrews ten one, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. They are not the realities themselves. Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. Religious festival, new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are the shadows of the things to come. The reality is found in Christ. That age-old illustration, you're waiting for a friend, you see his shadow, and you know your friend has arrived, and Paul is saying, why are you looking at the shadow? The shadow points to the fact that your friend has arrived. These are all shadows of Christ. Now that Christ has come, these ceremonial religious laws are set aside. Dietary laws, laws about the Sabbath, right? Laws about how to worship in the temple, the sacrifice, the set aside, because we have the reality that is in Christ for us. He is, he is our promise. He is the one promised by these prophetic uh, commands and the ceremonial laws, right? That is why, you know, we eat lobsters now, right? We worship on Sundays and we eat spam. Because these laws have been set aside because we are in Christ. The final category is the civil law, and much time has passed, and just these laws also reflect the holy character of God. These laws govern over leaders, regulating the army, criminal laws, crimes against property. If you read the Old Testament, a lot of uh, laws concerning property ownership, humane treatment of animals, of slaves, personal rights, family rights, laws regulating other social behavior. All these laws are under the category of civil laws. These laws reflected the holy character of God. Their purpose was unique. Their purpose was to govern over the nation of Israel. That's the purpose of these civil laws. And the nation of Israel, as a theocracy, 
where the king was placed there by God himself, was given the authority to penalize those who would violate God's moral and civil laws. So not just premeditated murder, if you were blasphemy, they would execute you. You were not obedient to the Sabbath, they would execute you. You would curse your mom or dad. Capital punishment. Who gave them this authority? The civil law of God. Who gave them the civil law? God himself, a theocratic kingdom. They, just, they were commanded not just to uphold the law, but to enforce the law. But the timing, when did this end? Because of the sinfulness of Israel, they forsook God and God rejected Israel and the civil laws of Moses ceased to be authority, ceased to be the authority over the nation. The nation stopped being a theocracy governed by God. Now, we're not, we can't be exact, completely dogmatic as to when, this, when did this happen. When did Israel stop being a theocracy, stop being a nation, of God, a nation belonging to God? Perhaps the reign of Solomon. Perhaps when Israel was divided after Solomon's death into northern tribe Israel, southern tribe Judah. Perhaps when the Babylonian exile of Judah in 586 BC, and there were no more sacrifices, no more temple. They stopped, when they were in exile, Daniel, they're not sacrificing anymore. This temple is destroyed. Now, we're not sure exactly when this happened, but most definitely by the time of Christ, the civil law was set aside. Doubly so, because the law of the land was not Jewish law, it was Roman law. They didn't have the authority for capital punishment without the permission of the Roman government. So, the question was, is Jesus canceling the Old Testament law? No. He is not condoning adultery in any way. The moral law is adulterous is sin. Thou shalt not commit adultery. He is not. What he is saying is, these religious leaders of Israel are not true leaders of Israel. That Israel is no longer a theocratic kingdom. Nation no longer belongs to God. That these leaders do not have the authority to enforce the civil laws of God. Our Lord in no way is condoning adultery. In fact, He raised the standard of the moral law in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember Matthew 5, 27? He said, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. I say to you, if in your heart, if you lust after a woman, you have committed adultery in the sight of God. He raises the moral standard of God's moral law. But concerning the civil issue, he says, no. You Pharisees, you leaders, supposed leaders of Israel, you have no authority to enforce the civil laws of God. What he is doing is he is exposing the hypocrisy of these Pharisees and scribes. Do not punish her. You are not the true leaders of Israel. And this nation is no longer God's nation. Not only do they not have the civil authority, by his statements, he's saying, you do not have the moral authority to condemn her. Let him who has no sin cast the first stone. I believe, this is what I believe, he is talking about adultery. 
he's not talking about generic sin. He's not saying, unless you're sinless, if you're sinless, cast the first stone. I don't believe that. If our Lord said that, then they would, they would say, yeah, I'm a sinner, but I still need to uphold the law, and they would have cast the stone. I believe what he meant. If you have not committed adultery, cast the first stone. The Pharisees and scribes were condemning this woman, were each guilty of the act of, immor- of adultery. And seared by their conscience, or convicted by their conscience, that is what caused them to turn away. Now, what basis do I, what, what support do I have? Romans 2.22. Apostle Paul, a member of the Sanhedrin, a member of the Pharisees, talking to Jews, he says, You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Paul was in the social uh, uh, circle of the Sanhedrin, among the Pharisees. And I believe he saw firsthand the immorality that was rampant among the leadership of Israel because they were not pious men. They were not godly men. They were corrupt men leading for selfish reasons. And he says, do you commit adultery? And the answer is yes. These very Pharisees, these very scribes who were accusing her of adultery were also guilty of this very sin. The Lord Jesus, being the heart searcher, knew well all their sins. He says, if you have not committed the sin of adultery, as well, cast the first stone. He sits back down in verse 8. Once more, he bends down. And he writes on the ground. What a dramatic scene. Look at verse 9. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones and then the younger. The older ones, they've probably lived longer. They're more broken by life, broken by their sinfulness. They're convicted first. The younger ones are the the prideful, the arrogant, self-confident, just foolishness of youth. They're holding on. But even then, they're convicted. They drop their, drop the stones, and they, they leave. Our Lord is left alone with this woman. Yeah, I know much time has passed, but I, I want you to picture this. Our Lord is alone with this woman, and He's the only one worthy to condemn this woman. He's the only one worthy to cast the first stone and condemn her. It's Jesus. Look at verse 10. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. What words of grace and mercy. Do you see here the vivid picture of the gospel? That woman is us. That, that woman is us. We are accused by the law. The law breaks us. law hammers us. With the moral law of God, the law's verdict is we are guilty and we can't plead innocence. All we can do is remain silent like this woman. Because the law of God has rightly concluded that we are guilty of breaking God's law. We have violated God's command. We have rebelled and sinned against Him. We are helpless before our accusers and without hope. Only thing that awaited us was our final condemnation. 
And while we're in that hopeless predicament, here comes our Savior. Here comes Christ, the perfect and righteous Son of God. And though He has a unique and complete authority to execute the judgment of God, though He has the power within Himself to condemn us and, and, and cause us to perish, what does He do? Instead, He shows mercy. He offers the forgiveness of sin by His perfect life and substitutionary death. What a powerful picture of the gospel message. Anyone here this morning, can you identify with this poor woman? Know that through God's sovereignty, this text was not lost. Though it lost its home through the gospel pages, through God's providence, it was included here for you. That you might understand its message. That you are accused before the law of God as guilty. And you deserve condemnation and judgment by God, for the law of God. But Christ offers to you mercy, offers to you grace, the forgiveness of sin, This text was written to you that you might know that Jesus has come to save you from your sins. That if you trust in Him for your sins, that He will not condemn, but He will save you. Deliver you from the law of death and bring you to eternal life in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, it is our prayer for that if there are anyone here who are outside faith in Christ, that the Holy Spirit would come and convict their hearts, open their eyes to see the law of God condemning them over and over concerning the guilt of their sins, accusing them rightly of how they have violated the law of God as we all have. At the same time, I pray that the Holy Spirit would convict them of the mercy and grace, the forgiveness of sins that is found in Christ our Lord. They would, they would hear the words of Christ, that He does not condemn, that He has come to seek and to save that which was lost. For the believers here, there is so, so much here that is relevant to us. So many truths that we we can and need to apply to our lives. Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would convict us as well to make the right application, to leave uh, with a vivid picture of the gospel, causing us, spurring us to obey you and love you all the more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.